This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. We competed against each other on Jeopardy. Kyle ended up winning seven games. And we've been chatting about the show ever since. Each week we start with analysis of this week's Jeopardy episodes. Then we move on to a deep dive into a question or category from one of those episodes. And we wrap it up with a quiz. And this week we have a special guest with us. Joining us from Salt Lake City, Utah, it's Anagi Garcia. Hello. Happy to be here, guys. Yeah. I have also lost on Jeopardy to Kyle Jones, so it's a, <laughs> that, it's a happy club. I I disagree. <laughs> I I say we both lost to Gilbert. That's true. That's true. But it was yeah. It was a it was a grand experience. It was. It was. <laughs> Could not have lost to anybody better. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Can't be angry at Gilbert. He's just too nice a guy. Mm. I know. I know. And his, and his kids are awesome. Man. Oh, they're they're adorable. Yeah. They both they both and this was at the tournament of champions is what we were referring to, but Gilbert's kids both had these little t shirts that said future Jeopardy star and it was so adorable ah. and Yeah. <laughs> we're not Gilbert's not the guest. Anakin's the guest. What are we talking about Gilbert for? <laughs> All right. Before we jump in, do you I don't know, have any like updates on yourself that you'd like to share with the listeners because they might be interested <laughs> in, you know, you. Yeah, well, I am Anarchy. I was on Jeopardy in 2019, and the very at the very beginning of the year in January, I was on for five games, and then I came back for the tournament in November. Um, but I have been—I I was hoping to have an announcement—is that I'm working on a cookbook that I've been trying to get ready. That's like been almost done for a few months, and it's still almost done. Mm-hmm. So that's the one exciting thing that I've been doing lately. I—I I normally my normal day job is uh, I do an instructional design. So we—I work for a healthcare company, and we build online courses about medical stuff, which is pretty. Um, you know, interesting and relevant in the world right now. But then my my side hobbies are cooking and um, a little bit. Of, I did graphic design in my past, so I'm doing that and bringing that together for my cookbook, which is going to have a trivia slant to it. So nice. I'm yeah. Do you have a title? I think I want to call it Trivial Cookery. I thought that would be kind of fun. I like it. Um, and nobody has shot me down yet, so yeah. <laughs> we'll see if we yeah we'll see if we go with that. Awesome. I'm pretty sure you'll let us know when you finish it and when it's when it's ready. Yeah. Uh, but we'll be sure to plug yeah. it here too. So mm-hmm. that'd be awesome. Yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun. I have a friend who's an awesome photographer, so she and I get together on weekends. We've been doing it for a few years now. We get together, cook, take photos of it, and then it's just an ongoing project. Nice. So yeah, that's super cool. That's what I'm up to these days. Nice. <laughs> All right. Well, we're gonna jump right into it. This week we have the college championship quarterfinals and on monday april 6th we had the contestants sarad hassan a senior at princeton university from frederick maryland emma farrell a senior at carnegie mellon university from telford pennsylvania and marshall como a sophomore at the university of texas at austin from dallas texas oh sorry i mispronounced it a sophomore a sophomore. <laughs> I was riffing on that all week. I guess that's the Canadian way they say it. I mean, huh. I found out when I was making fun of Alex on Twitter. I guess that's what Canadians do. They say sophomore. Mm, huh. So 
Now we know. <laughs> and uh, but yeah, it, Alex said it like twenty five times uh, this week. And it was every time. It was glorious. Sophomore. Um, <laughs> yeah, and we get the Jeopardy round categories: presidential nicknames, TV of today, college etymology, mammals, alphanumerics, and e college e. Uh huh. I see what you did there, writers. Yes. <laughs> I know they've always been like that, but I feel like they've really ramped it up the last couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> I felt like a, a much of this week people were trying to start from the bottom of the board. Mm-hmm. It went okay for them. Uh, these these Monday contestants did did that. They started with a couple of the $1,000 clues and kind of, um, they jumped around some, but mostly m- mostly worked up from the bottom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was on, a, what was it, Wednesday's show that Alex made a comment about James influencing people or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was what the the all in yeah. bet. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm sure. We'll, I guess we'll get there, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, as Emily and I have discussed, it is the optimization strategy if you're going for the highest dollar amount, as long as you can back it up with knowledge. I always try to tell my you know people who aren't obsessive Jeopardy nerds like me. It's not just it wasn't James Holtower who revolutionized the the play. Like if you watch especially tournaments mm-hmm. in previous years, this has been a thing for a while and it was Arthur Chu's thing and it was Chuck Forrest's thing. So yeah. it's not new, but um, I can definitely see a lot more people catching on to that. Especially about a lot of these kids did their homework before they appeared in the tournament. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine, yeah. One thing I was excited to see in this episode was a in the TV of today category. There is a clue about Noho Hank from the TV show Barry, and he has got to be one of my favorite TV characters in recent years. He's just like this really well acted, just wacky, hilarious, bizarre Chechen gangster character, <laughs> and it's it, he's so much fun. I was really glad to see him show up in Jeopardy. Is Barry is that the is that Bill Hader? Yep. Yeah, it's it's Bill Hader being a hitman, but it's funny. It's a very strange meld of genres, <laughs> but it's oh. great. We find the first daily double at the eight hundred dollar level of the mammals category uh, as the seventeenth pick. Emma finds it, and at that point is in a pretty solid lead with four thousand to Marshall's eight hundred and Sarad's two hundred. Um, Emma wagers 2,000 and gets the clue. The mnemonic device D has one hump, B has two, helps us remember these two types of camels. And she correctly responds, uh, what are the dromedary and Bactrian camels? I learned that from a poem in a highlights magazine when I was a kid. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's... (laughs) Oh, highlights. (laughs) Highlights was great. Highlights was good. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's one of those facts that everybody in elementary school knew. And then it's just how long has it been since you had to access that information on whether you still know it. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. I mean, that's exactly the mnemonic that I used to. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Emma is in the lead with 9,400. Marshall and Surratt are tied with 1,000 apiece. And we get the double Jeopardy categories. I'm your new personal trainer. College tales. Official language in common. Celebrity lectures, art history, and what do you stand for? Which turned out to be about, like, acronyms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so Marshall is picking first, and he snipes the first 
or the second daily double of the game on pick number one. Uh, it's the $1,600 level in official language in common. He wagered 1000 I think he meant to wager 2000 I thought the same, yeah. Because he had 1000 and he wanted to... He could say bet it all, but that's not actually the maximum there. But mm-hmm. it's, we've seen that mistake before. Uh, yeah. And he gets the clue Burundi and Switzerland. Uh, and he takes a moment and correctly identifies what is French as the common language. Yeah, and actually, uh, when I watched that, I couldn't remember if Burundi was a very Francophone um, African country. It's kind of, it's it's a lot further southeast than a lot of the other Francophone countries. So I did have to look that up. And French is a language along with English, and mm-hmm. but one of the native languages is, is more prominent there. So I knew it, it had to be French because Switzerland, you've got German, Italian, French, or Romance, and none of those others are going to be African languages but i thought that was a, that was a well-written clue yeah mm-hmm. it was it made you think yeah 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 i agree because burundi borders the drc right yeah mm-hmm. Which... there's a lot of french speakers yeah. there so mm-hmm. we get the third daily double just a few clues later as the fifth pick at the two thousand dollar level of what do you stand for and marshall finds this one also um and Alex reminds him that he can wager up to two thousand, and he. I thought I thought it was charming. He said he would wager up to two thousand, and then clarified that he meant <laughs> two thousand. Um. After I read the quest, after I see the question, I will tell you how much I'm. I'm actually... leave myself a legal loophole here and say up. To yeah. So he uh, he gets the clue. The last name of this British mathematician is the T in CAPTCHA, a computer security test. And he correctly responds, who is Turing, Alan Turing. I did not know that, but it makes a lot of sense, given that it's a test to prove that you're not a robot. Mm -hmm. I had to guess that one as well. I was like, well, it has to be Alan Turing, but I hadn't thought of CAPTCHA standing for something before. Yeah, I I didn't know it, but I figured... like like you, Kyle, right? Like it's a T, mm. it's a test proving you're not a robot. Like, you know, who else could it be? <laughs> Gotta be, yeah. Uh, right after that, the next pick is the $1,600 clue and what do you stand for? And I imagine Anarchy, having just talked about a uh, cookbook in the making, <laughs> probably knew it. Uh, the clue is, used in the kitchen, E-V-O-O stands for this. Don't want to paint with a broad brush here. I'm just going to say anyone who ever watched Rachel Ray... Mm-hmm. would know what EVOO is. Yeah. Yep. It it just sort of made me think, oh, like, these <laughs> these kids, like, they know all their presidents, but they, they haven't had to, like, you know, get out into the world and cook for themselves yet, maybe. Right, they, 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 haven't, had a, they <laughs> yeah. haven't had a kitchen yeah. yet. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Marshall has made a push. He is at 8,800, Emma is in the lead at 12,200, and Sarad is in third at 2,600. And they get the final Jeopardy category, Wonders of the Modern World. And the clue, nicknamed the Big Ditch, in 2014, this modern wonder celebrated its 100th anniversary. And Sarad wagered almost everything, 2,500, and... She guessed what is no man's land, which I could see, uh, thinking about dishes or trenches and the timeline being 
a hundred years from the First World mm-hmm. War, but that is incorrect. Yeah, good guess. Yeah. Uh, Marshall wagered everything but a dollar, eighty-seven ninety-nine, and he correctly identified what is the Panama Canal. And Emma made a cover bet, but she incorrectly guessed what is the Hoover Dam, which was. Mm-hmm. If you if you really have no idea, I guess it's a decent guess, but Hoover wouldn't have been president for another eight years after that. Mm-hmm. And probably just thinking of, you know, modern wonders, sure. so the Hoover Dam's really big and notable. It's a little better than me. I spent about twenty five seconds of the think music just sure that I knew it, but I had I had been thinking of eighteen fourteen. I had oh. gone two centuries back and I was like, Oh, easy, Erie Canal and then I looked at it at the very last minute and I was like, Oh wait, that's too early. That's the Panama yeah. Canal. It was pretty funny. Um I was like, Oh, I'm glad I was not on stage during that lovely little brain. Right. <laughs> I have those a lot when I'm like, Oh, I got to that way too late. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh speaking of the think music, my daughter watching it with, with me when the think music came up, she turned to me and said, why is it different Jeopardy? (laughs) Both my kids had that remark, similar remarks also. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like something is not right. What do you think about the, the kind of marching band style they're going for? I I don't want to come across as pretentious, but like, I I like, (laughs) I like the idea of it being a college thing. I don't like that. It Mm -hmm. was obviously like, it's obviously marching band midi patches like (laughs) yeah you could have i don't know they could have got a marching band to actually play it that's that's (laughs) just that's my only thing on it like i like the idea could have been executed in a more i don't know um authentic way yeah so anyway as we've discussed before i think when we were talking tournament of champions the the tournament format changes the wagering strategy a little bit because you have those wild card slots to compete for and so where normally the second place person would just want to think about if first place misses how do i optimize my chances of getting the win um in this case another thing to think about is trying to get one of those wild card slots and so yeah um yeah so that that kind of changes the math yes yeah you don't see a lot of big bets Mm -hmm. so going into Tuesday, we have the contestants Nathaniel Miller, a sophomore at Yale University from Miami, Florida. Kayla Callor, a sophomore at the University of Florida from Longwood, Florida. We have Sophie Casarico, a junior at Florida State University from St. Augustine, Florida. And we get the Jeopardy round categories, the 1990s. They wouldn't have been alive then. So weird. No. Um, Nope. (laughs) Uh, Silent Letter Words, Broadway Musicals, Don't Blank on the Menu, Name the Speaker, and Whatever with EV in quotation marks. Yeah, you mentioned they would not have been alive in the 90s. That is, I mean, depending on, let's see, sophomore, sophomore, junior. Maybe. Like might have barely made it into 99. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I was born in 89, so I'm still, I'm an 80s baby technically, but. Mm-hmm. doesn't really mean much yeah they did they did well with it though clearly they've studied their history <laughs> yeah i had to wonder how many of them are like quiz bowl kids if i would have gotten a category for me the equivalent would have been a 1970s category mm-hmm. when i was in college i wouldn't have had i still have a very murky view of what happened in the 70s so yeah. i i don't know if they if this is a quiz bowl information talking but i was impressed mm-hmm. at how well they knew 
the world in the 90s. Yeah. yeah, Emily and I actually talked about that like last week or two weeks ago. We talked about it recently. Yeah, um, about how the the history just before we were born and like kind of in our early childhood, it was too late mm-hmm. to be in history class, but too early in our lives for us to remember any of it. So it's mm-hmm. like exactly. it's that blind spot. But yeah, they did one. They got NAFTA, which yeah. was nice. Which, I mean, I realize that's been in the news recently, so... Yeah, I thought the um, the dolly the sheep clue was cute, where they where they gave the clue and then repeated it <laughs> verbatim. Um, dolly the sheep became the first ever this of an adult mammal in 1996. Dolly the sheep became the first ever this of an adult mammal in 1996. So uh, to to sort of uh, add a hint that they're looking for a clone. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Thought that was fun writing. Yep, the Daily Double showed up in the Name the Speaker category at the $600 level. Nathaniel found it and wagered 800 of his 5200 He was significantly ahead of Sophie's 1000 and Kayla's 1400 at that point. Um, so I would have gone for a bigger bet. Maybe he wasn't confident. I don't know. He got the clue, 1968. Quote, I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. And he identified that that was uh, Martin Luther King junior i understand it's kind of common vernacular to just refer to him as martin luther king i mean i guess that is his name junior is not necessarily like i don't know i'm just talking now whatever yeah um (laughs) i mean i guess like under under normal jeopardy rules king would probably be sufficient right who is king so anything that you add beyond that has to be correct but there's probably a sub rule somewhere in there but yeah it's it's on the border yeah i knew one person who referred to him without his middle name you know who would refer to him as martin Martin king King. and that That was weird yeah oh that feels that feels weird to me Uh. (laughs) right like yeah i wonder if that would be wrong you know yeah I guess they would accept that, right? If you could, if you could accept Martin Luther King, you would accept Martha, Martin King. Yeah. But that just does sound so not even like the same person. Yeah. 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 Uh, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Sophie is at 1,200. Kayla uh, has moved up a bit to 4,600. And Nathaniel is in a good lead at 8,400. And they get the categories cliches, OK Boomer, British Lit, Country's Lowest Points, film characters, and health and medicine. And I just got to say something real quick about OK Boomer. I have students say that to me all the time. And I'm like, guys, you don't even know what that means. I am too... I, I'm two generations removed from that. What are you... You're just saying things. You uh, Anyway. And technically, Alex Trebek is not a boomer. He's older. Than yeah, I think we've... T- so that was another... <laughs> yeah thing that people brought up yeah i think you brought that up didn't you emily that he's like the silent generation or something yeah he's a he's the silent generation we get daily double number two in the health and medicine category um at the 1600 dollar level kayla finds it and wagers three thousand of her eight thousand six hundred she's in just the slimmest lead um nathaniel's at eighty four hundred sophie's trailing at twelve hundred and she gets the clue. It's the 10-letter term for an irregular heartbeat, whether the beat is too fast, too slow, or erratic. You can 
see her like counting on her fingers to make sure that the word she's thinking of is 10 letters. Mm -hmm. And then she says, what is erythemia, which unfortunately is a mispronunciation. There's no vowel between the TH and the M of arrhythmia. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I could tell um, she was going off of how the word looked. I felt it for her. I was like, oh, you know it. Yeah. But But her pronunciation changed the spelling. Yeah. Yeah. There's no way, there's no way given the correct spelling to make, to make erythemia fit. We get the third daily double in the British lit category at the $1,200 level. Nathaniel found this one as well, and he wagered 2,000 of his 11,600. He was in the lead uh, at that point. Kayla had 7,200, and Sophie was still at 1,200. He gets the clue, Hazel is the leader of the rabbits and the brother of Fiverr in this beloved novel by Richard Adams. And he has no idea. He can't remember it. Obviously, he comes from a later generation of uh, spelling bee trainees, <laughs> because that is Watership Down, which I don't know if Watership Down and the Phantom Tollbooth are still like, you know, classic <laughs> staples in that spelling bee training booklet. Uh, but that's how I know that book. <laughs> Definitely. Either that or um, being traumatized by the animated movie that looked like it was for kids and probably is not. I'm glad he <laughs> has so far in his life missed out on that one. But uh. Yeah. Uh, even though this was obviously taped a while ago, the $800 clue in health and medicine from a Greek word for people, it describes a disease that affects many people at one time. Nathaniel rings in and says, what is a pandemic? Uh, they accept that. Uh, rather, I think they were probably looking for epidemic. Yeah, it's the same root. It's the dem. That's right. The root, yeah. So. so either one of them works. Mm-hmm. And that's oddly prescient. As we have seen, like, a number of times, Jeopardy clues that, that were clearly written a while before they were relevant. And then recorded mm-hmm. before they were relevant, coming up at a time that is extremely timely. <laughs> uh, so at the end of the double Jeopardy round, uh, Nathaniel's in the lead with 20,000. Kayla has 12,000, Sophie's trailing with 3,200, and they get the category American History, and the clue, a 1711 bill cleared the names of 22 people who were tried in this town, including Rebecca Nurse, Giles Corey, and John Proctor. And this struck me as a pretty straightforward one. Mm-hmm. You can... You can get it by knowing the history, or if you know the play The Crucible, that might be another route in. Uh, so Sophie's wagered everything, 3200 um, and has what is Salem, Massachusetts. That's correct. Kayla also is correct with a $4,501 wager. And Nathaniel has it as well with a $4,001 wager. So he is the winner and a guaranteed semifinalist. And um, Kayla is in a pretty solid position also with 16501 Yeah, well played. So going into Wednesday, we have Kylie Weaver, a senior at Penn State from McLean, Virginia. London Lawrence, a sophomore from the University of Mississippi from Perryville, Missouri. And Alistair Gray, a sophomore at UC San Diego from Sunnyvale, California. The Jeopardy Round categories are all about April beverages. Anagrammed dorm essentials, book title animals, state the state, 
and the Drake Passage. Which I wondered when they announced that category, is this just going to be about Drake? And I was happy it to see that it absolutely was. absolutely was just about Drake, <laughs> yes. Yes, it is just about Drake. One of my seniors, who I'm absolutely certain does not watch Jeopardy, he would have killed this category. <laughs> he, he has told me that he plans on being the next Drake. So, <laughs> the, uh, the anagrammed dorm essentials category... It was the they left it for last. Apparently, none of them felt particularly uh, comfortable with anagrams. I don't know how that I would describe those things as actually being dorm essentials, like an alarm clock. Sure, but we have phones that do that now, so I don't know that that's really there. Toilet paper, yeah. I mean, sure, but like you usually don't have to bring your own. Yeah, yeah. Usually, like, that's like provided in my experience. Yeah, if it's a public, like if if it's public bathrooms in the dorm, like we. My sophomore year, we lived in a in a dorm that was, like, set up in suites, so there weren't public bathrooms. There were, like, four bedrooms and a main room and a bathroom that y'all shared, so we had to provide mm-hmm. that, but, yeah. Also, a microwave, again, if it's, like, if it's just a room and there's a public space, probably you're not providing that. And flashlight? I never had a flashlight. I know, that one, I, I was like, what? <laughs> Are you having to, like, yeah. find your way down the hallway at night, or what's the deal? Yeah. I'm not sure I ever had tinfoil in my dorm either. Yeah, no. Because what would you wrap, like, what would you use it for? I don't know. I, Whatever. Leftover pizza, maybe? I don't know. Like, you can just keep it in the box. Yeah. 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 Or just, like, on your desk. Or your bed. <laughs> or in the sink. I don't know. Which is what we know 85% of them are doing anyway. Right. So <laughs> I went to college. Oh. <laughs> I know how that works. My experience must be universal. Which is what the writer was thinking when they wrote this category. Exactly. I remember what the dorms were like mm-hmm. in nineteen eighty six. Flashlight. <laughs> a flashlight yeah. because because the oil lamps would run out plenty of times. <laughs> um, we get the first daily double at the eight hundred dollar level of state the state. It's the twelfth pick. Alistair finds it. Alistair has 1400 at that point and makes it a true daily double. Uh, Kylie's in the lead with 2000 London has 1200 And Alistair gets the clue, four U.S. states touch Mexico. This state's 140-mile border is the shortest. And he guesses what is New Mexico, uh, but the correct response there is California. And that was close. If you look at the map, New Mexico's just got a tiny little piece. And then Texas butts in. So it was, that was a... A borderline one too. Boom. Come on, writers, give us a little bit more. <laughs> I think that's the reason that that clue is like higher up in the category mm-hmm. because you have two, you have potentially essentially two options there that you got to kind of mm-hmm. flip the coin between. In the all about April category, we got a question about Easter and a question about Passover. Mm-hmm. How about that? And I would not have known the uh, the four hundred dollar clue. Often in April, Passover is celebrated with this meal at which the Haggadah is read. Haggadah. Haggadah. Haggadah is read. See, don't even know that. <laughs> but I knew it was a seder because of Jeopardy people. Yeah, I know so many more Jewish people now that I have Jeopardy. That's really yeah. That's think, that is I true. I think I knew like two <laughs> before. So yeah. yeah. Um, a cool number course. of Jewish Jeopardy alums have um, have made a like a. Passover, like Jeopardy, Hagada kind of thing. Yeah. I think, uh, oh, our former guest, uh, Lori Lander Goodman, 
um, yes. I think was like the was like the point person on that and coordinated it. Mm-hmm. I thought the whole beverage category was uh, just very product placement y. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. some some of them, I was like, I don't know, like that they. I mean, maybe they did, and I'm just not familiar enough with the beverages. Like some of those, I was like, how would you be able to pin that to a specific beverage? I knew all of them. Did you? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Fine. Then I just don't because know enough about beverages. I'm a responsible American consumer. <laughs> you just gotta spend <laughs> a lot of time at the convenience store. Yeah. Which apparently I do as well. So I was like, oh yeah, psh, I know mm. these. Yeah. I know my sparkling juices. <laughs> I know that bottle that I always see at the at the restaurant that I want to buy but can't bring myself to spend five dollars on. <laughs> yeah. I have been to the world of, world of Coca-Cola in Atlanta. That's kind of a fun tourist destination. That's what I've heard. I haven't been to Atlanta since yeah. 1996. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Atlanta, 1996. Oh, hey, yeah. <laughs> Take us into Double Jeopardy. <laughs> so at the end of the Jeopardy round, um, London is leading with 7,400. Kylie is trailing with 3,400. Alistair has 600. And we get the categories architecture, the solar system, the Olympic Games, old history, Straight C's, each response with a double C, and to the power of 10. As Anarchy kind of alluded to just a moment ago, we get uh, the second daily double in the Olympic Games category at the uh, $1,200 level. Kylie finds it, and she wagers 3000 of her 8200 She's kind of smack dab in between Alistair and London. And she gets the clue, the U.S. last hosted the Summer Games in 1996 in this state capital. And she knows that that is Atlanta. And that is, in fact, why I was there. Oh, that's cool. I was just a wee lad, but we were living in Virginia (laughs) at the time. And my mom was like, well, that's close enough to drive. (laughs) If you go to the Olympics, do most people, is it easy easy to get tickets to things? I was wondering about Um, that. It depends on the event. Uh, the really like the the high profile popular events, it's harder to get tickets. Um, but there are mm-hmm. you know there are a lot of events, and some of them mm-hmm. like we ended up seeing a bike race, and I don't think we had to get a ticket because obviously it's a, like the bike race has to go through the city on roads, you know, mm-hmm. so they can't can't just shut down the whole city and and you know keep people from walking up. So I don't know if we got tickets. I know we went to the Olympic Village, which you don't need tickets to enter, um, typically. And then we went and watched a bike race. Cool. Also went to the Winter Olympics when they were in Salt Lake. Well, when they were in Utah. They were were kind of all over. (laughs) They were all over Utah. I live in Salt Lake, but I did not go to the Winter Olympics then. But my mom did carry the torch. What? The torch relay came through Montana, wow. where we were at the time. And my mom was one of the torchbearers. So that was cool. That is awesome. That was, that that was a big deal. Cool. So there we go. Our personal Olympic history <laughs> joining in with the others of humanity. Nice. That's awesome. Oh, we had another Have to Know Your Seven Wonders in the old history category built in the third century bc on an island in the harbor the pharos of alexandria was one of these structures that's right yep that's the lighthouse you your your wonders or your latin languages because pharaoh pharos pharaoh mm. means light or lantern in a couple of those languages so mm. yeah i don't want to say it's a running joke but it's a common uh, a common thread here on this podcast yeah world wonders <laughs> <laughs> it's because because I tanked on daily double three and therefore it didn't beat Kyle. 
Um, yeah, yeah, she would have. Totally would have. Yeah. <laughs> Not that everyone who's ever been on Jeopardy has obviously studied the world wonders, but... <laughs> but there, there, are, there are only seven of them, and... Yeah. If you're going to, you might as well. Yeah, they can fit on one flashcard. You can... Yeah. Yep. Uh, we get Daily Double number three as the 29th pick at the $1,200 level of the solar system. Alistair finds it and makes it a true daily double uh, with 6,200. It's the right call at that point, I think. Uh, London is at 19,400, super commanding lead. Um, Kylie has 10,400. Yeah, he did the all-in motion there, and that's that's when Alex had a chance to, you know, to fangirl about James some more. <laughs> he gets the clue, believed to be made of metallic hydrogen, not water. The largest ocean in the solar system is on this planet. And he guesses Neptune, but the correct response there is Jupiter. I wonder if he was uh, focusing in on the word ocean. Yeah. Um, ocean and Neptune. Yeah. Although, is this? did you guys know this one? I thought it was a pretty guessy question. I don't think that's a super well-known fact about Jupiter. Yeah, I didn't, no. I didn't know this one, and my kids are telling me facts about mm-hmm. planets all the time, so that was news <laughs> yeah, to me. Yeah, I mean, I'm no astrophysicist, but I watch a lot of kids' videos about the solar <laughs> system, and this is not necessarily known as a defining fact of Jupiter. So I was a little bit, I was like, eh, that's a daily double, that seems a little guessy. Yeah. yeah. But I guess Jupiter, but only because it was biggest. Yeah, that's my humble mom on the couch opinion. But mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, like like Emily said, that Daily Double came at pick number 29. The last clue was a $400 clue uh, that Alistair managed to get. So he was alive for Final Jeopardy. Uh, going into it, we have the scores. Alistair at 400, London at 19,400, and Kylie at 10,400. And they get the Final Jeopardy category, American Authors. And the clue... She published under her middle name. Her first name was Nell, Ellen Backward, in honor of her grandmother, Ellen Finch. So this one was another, obviously had a clue built in. Mm -hmm. For me, it was another 25 seconds into the music before I figured it out. I was like, I know there's a clue in here. There has to be. I was like, Ellen Finch? Who is Ellen Finch? In the very last minute, I went, oh, Atticus Finch. And that was the... That's what they wanted you to get. Yep. I had the same thought process. I don't know if I would have gotten it written down in time if I'd been up there. You know, like I knew the correct mm-hmm. response by the end, but really right, like mm-hmm. right down to the wire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was even going, oh, yeah, Harper Lee, Harper Lee. But it was, I don't know if the five seconds would have gotten it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you could have just put down Lee. Yeah. Yes. But yeah. Yeah. So Alistair guessed who is Dickinson. Not a bad guess if you're not sure. Um, he wagered three ninety nine, so he was left with a dollar. Kylie did not offer a guess, and she had wagered eighty four hundred, uh, so she dropped down to two thousand. But London got it correct. Who is Harper Lee? And she punched her ticket to the next round. Mm-hmm. Jeopardy has in the past, I think, caught some flack for um, always designating categories as women. Um, categories about mm-hmm. women as being, you know, like women authors or, you know, women scientists. The special yes. kind of author, um, yeah. So <laughs> I, I appreciated that it was a, a question about a female author and that the category was American authors. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, so on Thursday, we get the contestants Shauka Ying, a sophomore at the University of Southern California from Arcadia, California. 
Benny Keown, a freshman at Northwestern University from Evanston, Illinois, and Joe Coker, a junior at Hendricks College from Conway, Arkansas. And we get the Jeopardy round categories. Where are you going for spring break? Homophones, college law, sports history, shopping, and returns. So yeah, for everyone who was paranoid that Jeopardy was predicting the future, I think today we proved you wrong. Because <laughs> we're not going anywhere for spring break. That's right. <laughs> the answer to every one of these is here. Here, here, here. Yeah. Maybe the McDonald's drive through if I'm feeling lucky. Yeah. If I really want to risk it. Yeah. Out of my backyard, but I'm wearing a mask. So the Daily Double is at pick number 18. It's uh, at the $600 level in the returns category. Benny found it, and he wagered everything that he had, which was 2000 uh, At that point, Joe was in the lead at 3200 and Schalke was at 1800 uh, He got the clue. After he returns in Luke 15, his dad says... Bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. Benny was shaking his head through the whole thing. Uh, I think he probably has very little uh, biblical knowledge. So he probably saw that and was like, I'm going to have no idea. So he guessed who is Cain. But that is from the story of the prodigal son. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is someone who gets killed in the story of Cain. It's not the calf. Yeah. <laughs> That's, that is accurate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so he drops down to drops down to zero but it was the right call he bet it all in the jeopardy round pretty much no matter what <laughs> if you find the daily double just bet as mm-hmm. much as you can mm-hmm. so at the end of the jeopardy round benny has rallied he's in a good lead at 5200 joe is in second place at 3400 and jack is at 2000 uh so she'll pick first from the categories european history party in the usa Don Quixote, Tea Off, Movie and TV Romances, and Chemistry. When did the song Party in the USA come out? I think it might have been. It was like 2010. It was around then. Okay. What? Because no. I was definitely in grad school and definitely still listened to it, maybe unironically. <laughs> <laughs> that? Yeah, it was... it's 10 years ago. Yeah. 2009. Uh- so it could be worse. They were they were alive then, definitively. But they were probably right in the Miley Cyrus demographic. Yeah, then, it could so. be. Could be. I it's giving me a crisis right now. I just I, I know. <laughs> anyway, that whole category, incidentally, surprised me by being about political parties. <laughs> yeah, uh, which Joe did very well in. Seems to be an area of strength for him. Yeah, Joe found Daily Double number two in that category as the 16th pick at the $1,200 level. He wagered 5000 of his 9000 uh, He was behind Benny at that point, who had 10000 Schalke was uh, in third place with 4000 um, And he got the clue due to the participation of Bull Moose Teddy Roosevelt. This incumbent president finished third in 1912. And he correctly responded, who is William Howard Taft. I did enjoy the category on movie and TV romances. Mm. I think this is, we've talked about the new head writer being a woman and a little bit more female-centric. And I'm, of course, saying that in stereotypical terms, but traditionally considered Mm female-centric, you know, canon coming up. And this is, you know, 
Chick Flicks mm-hmm. Central, and I, I liked seeing mm-hmm. that on there. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I liked the shout out to Crazy Rich Asians, mm-hmm. which was an absolutely fantastic movie and made me happy. <laughs> yeah. I knew the $2,000 clue. It, it's He played Rory Gilmore's boyfriend, Jess. Now he plays Mandy Moore's hubby, Jack Pearson. Except I can never pronounce his name right. It's Milo, yeah, how do you say it? Milo Vent- Ventimiglia. Ventimiglia. Yeah, I can never remember it if I'm not looking at it. So mm, if I'd been on yeah. stage, if I'd been on stage, I would have rang in and gone, Milo Vermmmmm. <laughs> the the Starbucks drink guy. That's yeah. Milo V. <laughs> Tell me I'm wrong. Mandy Moore's progression from like teen ingenue to like TV grandmother has been a very weird part of becoming an adult for me, incidentally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. I have not thought about that, but yes. I mean, we're not old, but Mandy Moore is clearly old. She's not even old. Yeah, She's no. in her 30s or something. Yeah. But <laughs> Now I have to find out Mandy Moore. Yeah, born uh, 1984. Yep. April 10th. Hey, oh, it's her birthday today. Oh, happy birthday, happy Mandy, birthday Moore. Mandy Moore. <laughs> Uh, I feel like this was, you know, a little serendipity for us to wish you all the happiness on this yeah. day. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> the third Daily Double shows up in the chemistry category at the $1,200 level. Benny finds this one as well. He is at $13,600. Uh, Joe is up at 17200 And Chuck is at 6400 So Benny wagers 4000 to put himself up next to Joe. Uh, the clue is the main products of the alcoholic fermentation of sugar are ethanol and this gas. And I, th- I think he talked himself out of the right answer. He went with what is oxygen gas, uh, but it was carbon dioxide. And he, he seemed to seem to be shaking his head at that. So that's one of those clues that I would have known if I was closer to high school chemistry, but it wouldn't have it would have been a stretch for me. Did you guys were you able to get to oh, that? Yeah. yeah. I'm also in prime home brewing country. Aha, uh-huh. yeah. Probably comes up a little more often for you than it does for me. <laughs> I do not do home brewing, but I, I got it more via the home brewing route than via the chemistry route. Yeah. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, um, Joe is leading with 15,200. Benny has 14,800. So he did manage to make a bit of a comeback after that last daily double. And Schalke has 6,400. And we get the category European borders. And the clue barely changed since a 1297 agreement. The border between these two countries is called La Raya on one side and A Raya on the other. And all of them were able to get this one correct. Shauka wagered everything, six thousand four hundred, um, which is smart, I think, because you know she's she's aiming for those wild card spots. Uh, and correctly responded, "What are Portugal and Spain?" Benny wagered one thousand to get just above Joe, and, and that way, either way, he's got you know a shot at a wild card spot, depending on how the other quarterfinal matches shake out. And uh, he had what is the Spain and Portugal border, and then he crossed out the and border to leave himself an answer in the correct format. What is Spain and Portugal? Mm-hmm. Um, Joe wagered 15,000 and correctly responded. What are Spain and Portugal? 
Yeah. And uh, my wife asked me about that because I talk about wagering now. She said, <laughs> now? In a, in a, <clears throat> well, yeah, she said in a tournament setting, is that good bet? Because obviously for, you know, it's a cover bet in a regular game. Mm-hmm that's the right bet for the person in first place but in a tournament game where you are potentially throwing away your chance at a wild card if you get it wrong do you make that cover bet to try and ensure that you move on to the next round or do you hedge yourself to give yourself mm-hmm. a better chance at getting a wild card and i don't know and they don't know what the standings of, of the other contestants are they haven't seen the other rounds right so we know that if joe bet zero he'd be in good shape but mm-hmm. um i don't know that he was thinking that deeply into it but but it was a pretty gettable question i think for anyone so. yeah yeah i i felt so too there's really not a good second place i could think of for two romance languages bordering each other but right and especially yeah that one is not french right like <laughs> right like it's, it's pretty obvious that neither one is french so you, yeah. you're pretty limited mm-hmm. all right so going into friday we have nibir sarma a sophomore from the University of Minnesota, from Eden Prairie, Minnesota. Natalie Hathcote, a junior at Liberty University from Parker, Colorado. And Tyler Combs, a senior at Indiana University from Greenfield, Indiana. And we get the Jeopardy round categories. Think Small, Modern Music, Words to Fear, Spring Break, spring in quotation marks, Cats and Old Deuteronomy. Oh, I just saw what they did there. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Sorry, Old Deuteronomy is a character in Cats, which I didn't see when I was watching the show. Oh, I just got that. Yep. Thanks, writers. I did not because <laughs> I am blissfully ignorant when it comes to cats. <laughs> what do you think, Kyle, about the term modern music? They obviously meant contemporary pop music yeah it It didn't mean modern music right i mean it how are you with them using it that way i'm okay with it because the the word modern has a bunch of different meanings like it's not like it's not like they they said modern era music or like modernist music you know what i mean um and Mm -hmm. yeah contemporary pop music which calling it modern music i think is fine we uh in the in music education we often refer to uh, things that aren't like band and orchestra and classically oriented, we refer to it as like modern music or modern band. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't have an issue with it. I think it's a bit vague, but it's not incorrect. Yeah, maybe that was their intention, but I don't know. Yeah. It was just pop music. Yeah, but that's okay. I mean, because yeah. it could it could be the you know the new music for you know written by composers in residence with symphony orchestras but it obviously was not that right yeah (laughs) i have a feeling they would never do that (laughs) that'd be a bit too deep yeah (laughs) the first daily double comes up very early in the round as the fourth pick at the 600 dollars level of the old deuteronomy category Natalie finds it and uh, makes it a true daily double with a thousand. Uh, Tyler is at two hundred dollars at that point. Nubir is at four hundred, and Natalie gets the clue. Deuteronomy five is one of the two places in the Bible where this important list is enumerated, 
and she correctly responds, what are the Ten Commandments? Not too surprised that she knew that coming from Liberty University. I don't think they'd let her back if she knew yeah. that. So. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> Didn't surprise me that she went for this category early on. Yeah. And did pretty well in it. Yeah. Yeah. The other place where the Ten Commandments are enumerated is in Exodus. Uh, Natalie has a very strong uh, Jeopardy round, uh, including that correct Daily Double. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Natalie is in a pretty commanding lead with 7,800. Tyler has 3,800. Nibir has 2,600. And we get the double Jeopardy categories, Head for the Hills, Rhyme Time, People Named Alex, Literary Genres, <laughs> uh, Don't Know Much About History, and Film Schools. Getting Alex Trebek to say the word genres is, um, as Jeopardy fans know, kind of a whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The audience knew as well. I could tell there were some snickers in the background. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's always fun. Being able to mix his genre and sophomores. Oh, man. We got got some prime (laughs) Alex today. And then we had some meta Alex. We had a category about Alex's. That was kind of fun. The second Daily Double came in the literary genres category at the $1,200 level. Uh, Tyler found it. He wagered... 3,400 of his 16,600, uh, he really took off in, in this double Jeopardy round. Um, Natalie was at 9,800, Nabir was at 3,400, so he was already in a significant lead. This was pick number 11. He gets the clue, this Latin American genre is with an oxymoronic name involves the extraordinary seeming ordinary. And it seemed to take him a little bit to get there, but uh, he came around to magical realism. One of my all-time favorites. Yeah, I yeah. just had a conversation like two days ago with my wife about this. I don't, I don't know what spurred it. Probably, we were unpacking a box, of, like boxes of books, because we're moving, still, still unpacking in our new house, and we have some, like, like we have Bless Me Ultima and and some Gabriel Garcia Marquez. She asked me like what does magical realism mean and i had a hard time actually like like <laughs> you know disc- like defining what that genre meant but it's just when weird stuff is happening but it's cool but it, yeah that's about <laughs> as articulate as i would have like, gotten but it's like it's it's awesome it's all this weird stuff happens yeah, but it's like totally normal yeah. <laughs> i was just I, that's funny it must be the magical realism week because i was talking to my husband the other day about how everybody's making the joke about love in the time of coronavirus <laughs> Like, no, but Love in the Time of Cholera is super good. And so it was 100 Years mm-hmm. of Solitude. So read them. So, 100 Years yeah. of Solitude. It should be like a real, another like really easy um, like literary meme. reference. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure we've had 100 yeah. Years of Solitude already. Yeah. yeah. Garcia Marquez was just, you know, ahead of his time. Yeah. He knew what we would come up against. Yeah. <laughs> but he gets it right and adds to and bumps himself up to uh, 20,000 at that point, I think. We had a fun Learned League overlap. I thought um, in the film schools category at the $800 level uh, film schools was all like college campuses as like filming locations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the clue there was that's Occidental college, not the planet Vulcan in star Trek three, the search for him. Um, that's the search for Spock. And we had recently a learned league question. It was regular learned league, right? Where you were supposed to come up with 
the search for blank and the wrath of blank Spock mm-hmm. and Khan respectively. Mm-hmm. So that was, and then Khan showed up in another, maybe it was a one day special or something, but we had another Khan question. I think too. it was regular play. I think that we had two questions in regular season play where the correct response was Khan, but one of them was the wrath of Khan. Oh, it was the, the Genghis other was, Khan. And the question. other was That's Genghis Khan. Was. Yeah. That's what it was. Yeah. Lots of Khan and Spock and mm-hmm. Star Trek illusions. Good. We're teaching the youth as well. Yes. I'm okay mm-hmm. with this. Daily Double number three comes up as the 17th pick at the $1,200 level of Head for the Hills. Uh, Nibir finds it and wagers 2,500 of his 10,200. Um, at that point, Tyler has 21,600 and Natalie has 9,800. And Nibir gets the clue. Boston Sentry Hill was renamed this for the light used to warn of intruders. And he struggles with it for a minute and ends up responding, what is Lantern Hill? Um, but the correct response there is Beacon Hill. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I would have gotten it in time because my brain went straight to Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I know this is a Boston place. And now I'm just thinking about lighting the beacons. So maybe my brain was in the right place, maybe. but who knows? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to like fact check myself. But like, I, I'm from Massachusetts and somehow missed it. My brain, I know, my brain went right to Paul Revere for whatever reason that sort of tripped me up I think because like the sites you visit when you're like doing your Paul Revere tour are not like the same sites that you visit when you're doing your Beacon Hill tour and like yeah I got I got like into the weeds you know too much about yeah that's the trick Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) through this round uh Nibir was able to to bring himself up to 9,700. So he, he made a bit of a push uh, closer to the end. Natalie was pretty much a flat line through the round. She got one $2,000 clue correct, and that was it. So she's at 9,800. And Tyler just dominated. He has a lock game at 29,200. Uh, they get the final Jeopardy category, Words in the News. And the clue, on September 25th, 2019 searches on merriamwebster.com for the definition of this three word latin term increased by 5500%. Nabir wagered 8748. Good bet I would have just bet it all but uh, maybe that's a significant number for him and he correctly identified what is quid pro quo. So he uh-huh. bumps himself up uh, Natalie wa- wagered 5400 and she was going for Writ of Centurari, uh, which Alex tells her is uh, Certurari. And they have a laugh. She plays it off. Government class was a while ago. And then she apologizes. It was charming. <laughs> Yeah, I liked her. I liked her come back. Alex said, "Well, don't be sorry to me." She said, "No, I'm sorry to myself." Yeah. Yeah. She yeah. she handled that well. It was cute. Yeah. And Tyler had only wagered eight hundred. I guess he was just trying to get to around thirty thousand, uh, and wrote, "What is cogito?" Um, presumably for cogito ergo sum, but uh, that was also incorrect. Not that it matters because he is moving on, and that means that uh, Nibir is actually one of the wild cards. Mm-hmm. As well as uh, Benny from Thursday's show and Shauka from Thursday's show. 
And mm-hmm. the last one is Kayla from Tuesday's show. Yep. So we'll see them back on Monday to start semifinals. Yes. Yeah, it was a fun week. They were fun players to watch. Yeah, I like I like the college tournament. I always have. All right, so that's the week. That's the quarterfinals of the 2020 college tournament. This is a prime time. <laughs> talking about college students means that we're definitely talking about people who have a lot of expendable income. And speaking of expendable income, we have a Patreon. If you are uh, interested in perhaps supporting our podcast financially, we have different subscription levels. Uh, At all the levels, you get access to our bonus content. And I think it's just becoming another running joke now that I very much promise I'll get that outtake reel put up. But I will. Uh, We also have other exclusive content behind that paywall that uh, we will be adding to as we kind of get used to this new state of being but uh yeah check it out uh anarchy already told me what she's gonna be doing her deep dive on so i'm not gonna oh no now i have to come up with all the guesses myself if you want to you could you could guess or or we could just let anarchy take it away it'd be fun to make you guess i had fun like trying to to decide all week i was like oh maybe it could be this maybe it could be all right so you weren't locked in on monday I have a feeling that my personal brand would make people steer towards like Jello molds, but that was not yeah, a category. Yes, no, I. I... <laughs> no. Yeah, um... I've somehow become enough of a person that posts pictures of Jello that that's who yeah. I am now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, it did pop into my head that uh, oh, if there's a Jello category, <laughs> <laughs> I thought the art history category on Monday might have been something that appealed to you. That was my second place. That was that was up there. Yeah, so that's not what I thought. All right, so it's so it's not Magritte. <laughs> nope. All right. I do love me some surrealism, but yes. Okay. There was a triple stumper in the British lit category on Tuesday about sense and sensibility. Mm-hmm. I did tweet about that one. Oh, did you? <laughs> I haven't checked your Twitter. You did. <laughs> I felt myself like like owning the undergrad kids. Sense and sensibility. Yeah. But yeah, they haven't had the same life experience that we have, mm-hmm. but. That was that was another favorite. All right, so but not that one either. Okay, let me see if I can come up with one more guess. What about Venice? I know that one. I didn't know. I yeah. didn't know the Venice one. Mm. So I, I think that's a an era. I know a lot of. I was a a double major in French in my undergrad, so I know a lot of French stuff. Mm-hmm. But I'm not as good at like the Italy, Germany, that era. Yeah. So. Okay. All right. So what are we doing? Those very good guesses, but this is actually one of my all-time favorite topics, but I don't know that people know as much that it's one of my favorite topics because I'm probably not as obnoxious about it. But <laughs> it's actually a Monday question, and it was the official language in common category. There is a triple stumper about the official languages in Bolivia and Peru, and one of them is Aymara, and then there was two others. Mm-hmm. So the official question said Bolivia, Peru, Aymara, and these two. And do you guys remember what those other two I were? I got that one correct. It's Spanish and Quechua. Quechua. Yes. Yes. So I'm super into language. I did, um, my grad program was in educational psychology, but I focused in second language acquisition. We let They let us have a track, so it was kind of a half in the linguistics department, half in education. So I'm really kind of a language nerd and took this opportunity to nerd out even more. (laughs) And I really wanted to focus on language 
families and groups of the Americas because they're fascinating and there's so much linguistic diversity in both North and South America and so much cool stuff and there's languages that do weird things that we're like whoa I didn't know any human languages did stuff like that so I thought that would be fun to talk about, if, if that sounds fun to you that guys. That sounds fun to me. Um, sounds very fun. So I looked through just a bunch of sources, and the other cool thing is it doesn't matter how long ago you studied language or linguistics, things are always changing because linguists are reconstructing old proto-languages, they're finding out new connections, so stuff that you knew has changed names and changed, um, you know, connections. And the first language family that I looked at is the Nadine language family. And when I learned it, this was called the Athabascan languages. But it's really fascinating. It ranges from the Tlingit languages of Alaska, kind of the southeast island areas of Alaska. That's one family or one subfamily of it. And then the Athabascan languages themselves cover really huge areas of Alaska, Yukon, um, Northwest Territories. So um, kind of that upper part of, I guess, northwestern part of Canada, plus a little bit of coastal U.S. down into like Oregon and Northern California. And so there's a big, you know, geographical spread of those related languages. And then this weird little cluster of languages further south in the U.S. that includes Apache, Mescalero, and Diné. And have you guys heard, do you know what language Diné is? Vaguely rings a bell, but I don't remember anything about yeah, it. Yeah, I don't, I don't either. The more common name we know it by is Navajo. Oh, okay. Oh. Navajo is a super cool language. And who knew that Navajo was linguistically related to people in Alaska and Yukon and areas mm. up there? That's wild. Yeah. So, yeah. So when they study the linguistics, they learn a lot about, you know, human movement and, and where people must have come from and who's related to who. So that's one of the really cool parts about, especially within the Americas, is we don't have a lot of written history for certain periods of time, but we do see movements and connections through language that then they follow up and they find like, you know, nowadays we can do DNA um, studies and, and find connections there that we kind of just guessed at linguistically. So that was pretty cool, that yeah. first language family. The second one is another North American language family, and those are the Algonquin languages. And those include people whose names we will really recognize as Americans, the Massachusetts, uh -huh. the Narragansett, the Delaware, the Powhatan, those groups all in the Northeast were Algonquin language speakers. And then it also includes the Ojibwe and the Cree who stretched up into Canada. And even as far out to the Blackfeet. And do you know where Blackfeet people live today? I should know that, but I don't remember. This is Try another closer to home for me. Utah. Idaho. <laughs> so Montana. my Montana is. I, I spent my teen years in Montana, so first Blackfeet's try. one of the nations there. Totally first try, he knew that. But it's it straddles <laughs> the border of Alberta and Montana are the different Blackfeet people. So they are linguistically related to the Algonquin languages in the East. So that's another really cool connection. But I think my favorite language family that I know about, and I know a little bit more about this one because some of my linguistics professors studied this, um, is the Uto-Aztecan language family. So um, as its name implies, Uto includes the Utes and the related peoples, and then Aztecan, the Aztec peoples as well. Um, in the pre-Columbian era, this 
language family stretched from what's now Oregon and Idaho, so the Shoshone and the Paiute people, down through Utah and kind of the central part into the Hopi. And now not all the Pueblo people speak a Uto-Aztecan language, but just the Hopi. And they're, they're interesting because Hopi, Navajo, Zuni, you know, those tribes are all really culturally similar, but they speak totally different language families, like very disparate languages. Hmm. So that's kind of an interesting thing there. And then down into Mexico and especially the West Coast of Mexico, there's a lot of languages in that Uto-Aztecan family down even into El Salvador. There's one language that still exists in small numbers there. And um, they have reconstructed Proto-Uto-Aztecan and um, can speculate about where it would have arisen and how it would have spread. And they're saying it was likely in the northern Mexico and southern U.S. kind of border areas was probably the original homeland of those people. Those would have been the ancestors of both the Utes and the Shoshones and then also the Aztecs. And so those were the people who had the legend of the founding of Tenochtitlan that is the depiction in the center of the Mexican flag Mm -hmm. that we see today. They had a prophecy that they would see an eagle... Um, land on a cactus holding a snake and that's what the, where they were to build their capital and they were I don't know that if they were nomadic or they were I, I can't remember why they were moving and looking for new land but they saw that happen on an island in the middle of a lake and they said well that's where we're supposed to build our city and they came up with this really ingenious technology for the time and built a city on top of a lake mm-hmm. which is now Mexico City so it's a pretty cool um history behind all of that and their language is known as Nahuatl Mm -hmm. and it is a really cool language to look at Um, it's got some really cool features it's an agglutinative language which means you stick stuff together it's got a really complex morphology so some languages that do a lot of um, word part building with morphology means they do it to the words themselves Um, And so other languages with agglutinative morphologies include Turkish and then Japanese and Korean are really famous for that. You can add a lot of prefixes and suffixes to a root word to make it a lot longer word or even a complete sentence. You can take a word, uh, a root, either a a verb or a noun and stick stuff onto it until it gets bigger and means a lot. So um, Japanese, for example, one of my favorite words to tell people, there's a word that means warm, like something is warm, and it's um, atatakai. And then you can change it and add a suffix and say atatakaku, which means it's a, an adverb form, like kind of warmly. Hmm. Or you can say atatakaku nai, which means not warm. So that nai negates the word itself. And then you can keep adding for <laughs> adding to it. And my favorite word to tell people is atatakaku nakunata. So you take that atatakai, Tatakaku nakunata means it became not warm. So yeah. if it was warm in here and got a little bit cold, you can say atatakaku nakunata. So that one word says it got cold. <laughs> <laughs> so agglutinative languages are super fun. Um, and that is the same or similar to the way that Nahuatl is, is formed. And if you've heard words from this language, um, you might have heard that suffix TL, like mm-hmm. in Nahuatl itself. Um, it's actually a really weird sound to try to make. We kind of approximate it by saying toll. But um, a lot of their words end in that TL. And I was curious enough, I looked up why do so many words end with that. That little piece of a word is um, a little marker that says that a noun is unpossessed and singular. 
And so it's called giving it the absolutive form. So that little TL or TLI suffix makes it so that noun is not belonging to anybody and it's singular. Hmm. If it's plural, it gets a different suffix. And if it's possessed by somebody, it gets a prefix. So when you're talking about just kind of the general object, like we would use a, you know, like a book or a lamp or something, that's kind of the form, the dictionary form that you would use the toll at the end. Hmm. So that's why you hear toll at the end of so many of their words. A lot of words have come into English, like the word coyote was coyotl. Um, the word atlatl, like the little thing that throws a spear. Yep. How do we say that even in English? At, atlatl? atlatl? Yeah, atlatl. <laughs> and then um, Mexico is Mexico. Mm-hmm. Is the, the name of it itself is a Nahuatl word. And then everybody's favorite animal that ends in TL. Any guesses? The axolotl. The axolotl. Those are the weirdest little guys in nature. I love so them. They are a, a Nahuatl word too. Yeah. yeah. So we've got all these really cool words that came to us there. And then if you move down the Americas, um, we don't know as much about South American languages as we would like to. There just aren't as many, you know, academic practicing linguists down there to capture the huge variety of native languages they have. Mm. You know, North America is pretty well, you know, covered of people studying. And a lot of the languages, of course, you know, are disappearing because as populations age and kind of assimilate, they lose those native languages. So we don't know as much about South America but there are actually a lot more native speakers. And I liked to, um, I looked this up, the number of native speakers of these various languages. So Nahuatl itself has 1.5 million speakers, and those are still people within Mexico today who use Nahuatl as, as either a, their primary language or are bilingual with Spanish. Mayan languages, which are mostly in parts of Mexico and Guatemala, parts of Honduras, they're between three and six million speakers of Mayan languages today. And then Quechuan languages, which are the ones that we talked about in the question itself, eight to 10 million speakers. And those are people largely in Peru, Bolivia, and then the Andes areas of Ecuador. Um, Quechua is really cool. It is the, you know, it's a family of languages. It's not just one and it's a range. It's, it's hard to put a line between what's a dialect, what's just an accent and what's a completely different language. But they say about 46 different languages in this Quechuan family. Um, it was the main language family of the Incan Empire. And the reason that it has so many speakers, you know, in in modern times as compared to these other native languages is that the Spanish actually encouraged its use for a while and Catholic missionaries in that area used Quechua and, you know, translated the Bible and some other texts. So it survived a lot better comparatively to some of the other native languages. So I had a lot of fun diving into that. I think for those who haven't learned much about linguistics or haven't, you know, done a lot of reading there. It's really an enlightening field to study, I think, especially for those of us who grew up in a really Eurocentric mold. Um, You start to see kind of how complex and really how beautiful human language is everywhere and that human brains in totally different places who, you know, look at like, you know, native Australians or, you know, people in all these totally different parts of the world still come up with really similar grammar structures in some ways, and then really different and complex and beautiful ways of, of speaking. And so it really kind of leaves you in awe, I think, of the human brain. I That's why I really like linguistics. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I was, you know, going along with all of this and thought up a few quiz questions for you guys, if you are in the mood for those. I'm always in the mood for quiz Definitely. questions. Definitely. Are you kidding me? 
All right, so are we are we doing a head to head thing again? How we how we how we doing this? How we scoring this? I thought I'd just kind of um, it's it's pretty informal. Um, we can give you. Let me think up a little a scoring. I'll I'll tell you how much it's worth when I ask you because I think some of them are easier than others. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. So, so this first one, I'm gonna I'm just gonna give you points, and they're arbitrary. It's like a I'm just making it up, shooting what? from the hip. You mean the points we earn here don't matter? <laughs> you you can um, redeem them at any point in time. If you come to Salt Lake City, I will give you a Jello creation. Ooh. Consummate to the number of points that you have <laughs> accrued. Wow, I think this <laughs> so is the first go. time the points have ever potentially meant something. Let's say let's say 500 points will get you some Jello. How's okay. that? Okay. Oh. Let's do this. <laughs> All right. So the first one, I have to give you a little background. This is a 100-point question. So the question is to name two language families from Europe, because I kind of want to compare Europe to the Americas. But just for your background, a language family, like Romance and Germanic, those aren't families yet. Those are still subfamilies. Those are branches. Damn. So, so Romance and, and um, Germanic don't count. So name two language families that are spoken in Europe, you know, modern political boundaries of Europe. I don't even know what to say here. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I have, I I have my guesses. I guess. Um, I don't even know. Yeah. I I have my guesses. Do you want me to go first? Uh, Yeah, you go first. Okay. I'm going to go with, with Slavic and Indo-European. Okay, you're not you're not extremely far off. Indo-European is one, oh, and nice. Slavic is a branch of Indo-European. Oh, okay. So, you're you're halfway there. So that was that was good. You got fifty percent there, Emily. What did you have? All right, I actually I also wrote down Slavic, um, and then I was like, mm-hmm. oh, maybe like the like I I started using like the ick to be like, well, if Slavic is correct, which I don't know if it is, then like let's go with Gaelic, because um, mm-hmm. that that sounded like a word I new anyway so that's i think i think i'm wrong on both of those then i'm guessing <laughs> they are yeah gaelic it's actually gaelic is a language celtic is the language right. family branch oh, okay. and that is also part of indo-european mm. so indo-european is pretty giant and it's pretty unique that europe and then into iran and india those are all part of indo-european but that's only one of them um the the other three though are not super hugely represented in Europe. So one of them is Uralic, and the Uralic mm. family um, involves, and they, they named that because they think it originated in the Ural Mountains, that involves Finnish, Estonian, and Hungarian. So those okay. are the weirdo languages, kind of. They, they thought that those that some of those might have been isolates for a while, but they found connections between them. Okay. So that's Uralic. The other two are just barely in Europe. So one of them is Turkic, because part of Turkey oh, okay, is in yeah. Europe. I was going to something like that, but Okay. Yeah, Turkic is its own family. And then the fourth is Afro-Asiatic, which I would have also given you Semitic, because Semitic is mm. a big part of the Afro-Asiatic mm-hmm. family. Mm-hmm. And do you know, can you think of which one language in Europe is Semitic? I mean, would Yiddish count as that? Yiddish is actually Germanic. Mm-hmm. I guess I, that makes has, sense. That's Yeah, no, I knew that. Mm-hmm. I knew that. It has influence from Hebrew, obviously. Yeah, but, but it's, a, like, Germ- it's like German and Hebrew. Yeah, I knew yes. that. Yes. Um, not a bad guess, but it's actually Maltese. Maltese oh, okay. is a Semitic language, and it's in Europe. So, so those are the four. There's only four language families in Europe, and there's one isolate, which is Basque. 
So um, that fact is kind of cool because Europe itself has these four families. In contrast, California, what is now modern day California, the languages that were historically spoken there, has 18 language families. Wow. So that shows you the diversity within the Americas that all of Europe gets four. California has 18. Hmm. I thought that was a pretty cool fact. So, yeah. Um, this next question, I'll give you 200 points. It's a ballpark guess, so I'll give you if you get within within 10. <laughs> within the, if it rounds up and down within 10, I'll give it to you. Okay. Um, how many national languages does Mexico have? Within 10. Within 10, that's within a little hint there. 10. Good. Lord. So it's not one. That's a hint. <laughs> I have a guess based entirely on nothing. <laughs> All right. I also have a guess based on nothing. Uh, my guess is 50. My guess is 50, 30. 50. Um, Emily was closer. It's actually 68. Ooh. So Good 63 Lord. of those are indigenous. I mean, five that, of them that are, makes are sense, European. Yeah. yeah. Yep. What are the five, though? You know, I looked it up and. Um, they're weird varieties of, let's see, of course, Spanish is the by far the largest. Okay, so the minority, these are called the minority languages. Catalan, which is oh. like a close to Spanish. Why is Catalan um, a, okay. <laughs> this, one, this one's going to weird you out. Um, Plautdeutsch, or Plautdeutsch is a Mennonite low German. So there's huh. a little group of Mennonites who live in Mexico. Huh. Um Chipilo Venetian. It's like a Mexico Venice connection somewhere. Wow. Um, and then Romani. Oh. Romani being what the Roma people speak. Yeah. That is that cool. is so strange to me, but really hmm. cool. Yeah. I didn't know any of that until I looked it up either. All right, so we're close. Um, <laughs> um, this is a question with a different answer for each of you. Uh-oh. But I looked up I looked up an answer depending on where you live. Mm. So we'll, we'll say this one's worth 300 because we need to make up some ground. Sure. Which native people lived where you live now? So this will be a different answer for each of you. Okay. So we'll have one. Kyle will have another. All right. I've got mine. This gonna, All right. This is going to make me so mad because I have the answer that seems obvious, but it's probably going to be wrong. But yeah, I have one. All right. Let's go with Emily. She sounded pretty sure. Okay, so I'm pretty sure that I live on land that uh, was the land of the, I'm not sure how to say it, the Lenape people? Uh, yeah, I think it's Lenape is how I, Len- I saw Lenape. it. Lenape. Lenape, yep. yeah. Very good. And they were also known as, do you know? I don't. They were also known as the Delaware. So Delaware oh, is kind okay. of what, um, we called them from someone else's language, but they called themselves Lenape. Mm-hmm. And then Kyle, what was your guess? I'm going to go with the Arapaho. Arapaho is correct. Oh, good. You actually had three or four. Okay, because, yeah, I mean, we live in Arapaho County, so I was like, if it's not Arapaho, (laughs) I could see us doing that, you know, being dumb Europeans (laughs) who, like, just name things, but... We're actually kind of kind of correct there. The Arapaho and the Cheyenne were the two biggest groups where you live, Um, and... The Lenape and the Arapaho both speak languages. Here's another bonus: 100 points. In what language family? Ooh. Um, I I have no idea. I mean, I guess what language family is it? I don't know. I have a guess. My guess is Sioux. I I don't think I have a guess. 
These are both Algonquin languages. Ah! I mentioned. All the way out here. Um, yeah, so the I, I mentioned the Blackfeet, and then I didn't tell you the Arapaho and the Cheyenne as well. Yeah. I didn't want to spoil your question. Well, I guess but I, yeah, I, the Arapaho and the Cheyenne are in the same group. Wow. So that's pretty crazy, too. Because yeah. you guys don't live very close no. to each other, but no, <laughs> those don't. people spoke languages in the same family. That's really cool. Yeah. So here's another, um, here's another, we'll say this is a 100-point question. What is the most widely spoken native language within the United States? Okay, I have a guess. I have a guess. I'm going to guess Cherokee. I was also going to go with Cherokee. Cherokee's a pretty good guess. Um, maybe historically that would have been, but today it's definitely Navajo. Which okay. Oh, uh, yeah. Second guess. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. Navajo has currently about 170,000 speakers. Nice. So we don't have the numbers that the Central and South American languages do, but Navajo has still remained pretty strong. Yeah. Um, this is one I, I arranged this question that you can do it t- together okay. <laughs> so I'll let you brainstorm and I'll give you 400 points if you get this one but you'll have to get three answers here so I would like you to name three foods whose English names come from Nahuatl so you can brainstorm three foods whose English names come from Nahuatl okay. a lot of times they come through Spanish but they're yeah. ultimately from Nahuatl Okay. All right. So we're, we're like we are thinking indigenous Mexican cuisine, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, it's not um, my strongest cuisine. You're much closer to there. You're gonna have to carry us. Um, well, I'm I'm trying to think. Of, I'm trying to think of things that sound like that sound not Spanish, and I'm. I mean, I have guesses about a f- couple of different things. I don't. I don't know if mole is. Oh, I that think, sounds compelling. I mean, it it seems like it could be. I am thinking. Um, uh, there's a dish called molcajete, mm-hmm. which uh, I mean could be. I don't know if that counts. Like I think isn't that like the the vessel in which you is that the vessel? I it think it's be. the vessel. Okay, so then that might not count. Oh, what about chocolate? Yeah, I get. Yeah, I could see that. I feel like I've seen like um, yeah, fancy like Mexican chocolates with like a with a spelling that makes me think that it could be from that. Yeah, language. I mean that 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 makes sense. The yeah. the Aztec drink like they made chocolate. Yeah, I'm pretty um, sure. Okay, so we got so we have chocolate mole, and oh man, uh, why am I having such a hard time with this? I mean. I mean, could it be like tamale? Oh, because I, I feel yes. like that's a pretty traditional, and yeah, new, new world kind of thing. I don't know if it's from Waddle though. It might be farther north though. Right. I don't know. You want to go with you want to yeah. go with tamales? Let's let's go with let's go with those three. Yeah. All right. So we're going with mole, chocolate, and tamales. All right. Those are excellent answers. I'm going to give you. They are, they are correct. Mole is on the border on whether or not it's an English word, oh, okay. which I'm I'm googling. <laughs> like, is that in the English dictionary anywhere? But I'll give it to you because guacamole is in an English dictionary, was, and it's the same base. I was gonna so. also say guacamole, but I was like, well, if I say mole and guacamole, that's yeah, it's cheating. like yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, but you you got that. So mole, the word means sauce, and so guacamole is avocado sauce. Okay. 
in, in Nahuatl. So that was one. Chocolate, um, the Nahuatl word was chocolatl. Mm-hmm. So you can see where we got that. Mm-hmm. And then tamal, it's interesting because tamale, like we say it, is mm-hmm. a false singular. In Spanish, it's tamal and tamales. Um, but oh, it's turned into an English word. Tamale is, a, is in an English dictionary, so we're allowed to say that now. Mm-hmm. So those those three count. Yes. Um, nice. You actually had me Googling because molcajete is a dish and and it's the... It's like a mortar and pestle. Mm-hmm. It's like a stone container. But Mexican restaurants, especially out here at West, yeah. have a dish that they they prepare in the molcajete, and so that counts as a dish. So yeah. that one does come from Nahuatl. I did have to look that up. So that one does too, even though it's not quite a, an English word. So yeah. my list I had from everything I could find in the etymology dictionary was chocolate, avocado, mm-hmm. is another, okay, guacamole, cocoa. So not only oh, chocolate, okay. but the but cocoa, cocoa bean itself, mm-hmm. and cacao. Okay. Um, and cocoa, it turns out, was an early misspelling of cacao, but they just went with it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> tamal, okay. tamale, chipotle, which was a, oh, of course. a recent learned league yeah. question as well. Yep. Yeah. Um, chili and chile, so like the, the pepper itself and chili, the soup, mm-hmm. both come. Um, mezcal, which is mm-hmm. um, increasingly popular pre-tequila drink, and tomato. So oh. all the delicious things. Come to us. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. Nice. Yeah, and I thought you might throw this at me because it was also a recent um, learning league question. Wheat la coche also comes from Nahuatl, though I don't think that's an English word. Yeah, that's the weird no. um, like the corn fungus, fungus that grows on corn. Yeah. Yep. The corn. That one's the also corn fungus. <laughs> the corn fungus, and it's pretty tasty. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever actually so. had it. I, don't think I, have. I had to be brave and try it once at a Takeria, and it was actually very good. Oh, I so love it. Just I, tastes like a mushroom. Yeah. If I'm at a restaurant and I see something I haven't seen before, I will get it. Or if it's like a limited yeah. time or a specialty mm-hmm. thing, I'm like, well, I guess I have to get yep. it. Better try it. <laughs> <laughs> good. That's the spirit. Yeah. All right. I've got two more questions for you. All right. All right. So yes. um, that one you guys each get 400 points for. Good job. Okay. Um, here's one going back to Quechua. What Quechua word has made it into a brand name that is so ubiquitous you can see it in a famous logo in virtually every country on earth? So it's a Quechua word that has made it into this brand name that is now in a famous logo that you can see almost everywhere. Huh. I'm trying to think of a logo with words in it. I have a guess. Um, I, I don't know. I really don't know. All right, um, so Kyle's going to tap out. Yeah, I'm tapping. Emily, what was tapping your guess? All right. Okay. Um, I am guessing that the logo is uh, the Coca-Cola logo. Um, oh, and that the word is Coca. Coca. Coca yeah. is correct. Coca yeah. is my guess, yeah. Yay! The Coca plant comes from that area, so yeah. we use their word for it. Makes mm-hmm. so much sense. And now sense. it's in every country. Um, other Quechua words that have made it into English include condor, Guano, jerky, I didn't know that. Beef jerky is from a Quechua word. Llama, of course, we probably could have guessed. Of course. Poncho, puma, quinine, and quinoa. Mm -hmm. So there's our our English adaptations from Quechua. Yeah, I got stuck on quinoa. I was like, is there a quinoa brand that has quinoa in it? That would be a major accomplishment for the Whole Foods marketers, but maybe that's in the future. Who knows? Maybe, yeah. So that's a that's a 200 point question for Emily, and then um, finally, this is just kind of a fun did you know question. But how do you say hello in Diné? 
I'll give you 500 for this because it's pretty tough. Yeah, I have I have no idea, and I don't want to guess something at the risk of coming across as racist. <laughs> so I'm uh, going I'm going to respectfully decline an answer. Yeah, I I have I have no idea and no idea how to like start coming up with a viable guess. Yeah. <laughs> it's one that you might have heard, like I've heard it in like some Indian country, you know, mm-hmm. but I, I live out here west. There's, you know, radio and magazines and stuff like that. So I've heard it a little bit around. The word is yate, which I think is, is pretty cool. Oh. Um, there's okay. some pretty cool um, YouTube videos of um, native Navajo speakers teaching some basic phrases. And it's pretty dang complex. I tried to get an idea of how it's all put together. And it's it's a complicated one. Mm-hmm. but. Cool. So I was trying to keep track in my head of the points. I don't know what they were. I think Emily, Emily got won. seven or eight hundred. <laughs> yeah. Yay! Hey. Excellent work, Emily. Thank you. But hopefully, hopefully this was a fun learning experience for everybody. This was I delightful. Had fun. Oh yeah. Looking it up. So. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, this was super neat. So thank you, Anaki. Yeah, my pleasure. And thanks, listeners, for spending your time with us. It's a delight to have you with us. Uh, make sure to just to subscribe where you get your podcasts. Um, If you could leave us a review or rating, that would be super helpful. Yeah. You can also check out our Patreon, like I talked about earlier. Uh, If you want to support us that way, you can also support us simply by telling your friends and uh, getting, getting other people listening. Obviously we're all at home. So, (laughs) and we're a family friendly show. So you don't need to be afraid about having us on with your kids around. You can find us on social media. We're on Twitter at Potent Potables One. We're on Facebook at Potent Potables. You can find our website at potentpod.com. And if you want to email us, uh, we are potentpotablescast at gmail.com. And we'll be back next week for the semifinals and finals of the college championship. So until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Mm-hmm.